Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. I couldn't remember that last line. I was sitting there just listening to Nate play it, and I remember it takes me right back to being a kid when I was growing up at Oak Valley Baptist Church in South Franklin, singing that song in the basement of the house that we met in for our worship facility. And then I looked up on the screen and saw that last line, grace that is greater than all our sin, and it came back to me. Thanks, Nate, for reminding us of God's great grace. Today we're going to finish off our series in September. Today's the last Sunday in September, if you can believe that. Time flies. On being ambassadors for Christ. All month long, we've been talking about serving as resident representatives, right? I think about uh, diplomatic cars. Have you seen the diplomatic cars that have the flag of the country that they're representing on their car? Maybe we, we shouldn't have a, a, a fish on our car the way that some of us drive. But um, for us as ambassadors, it's like our whole life, we bear the flag of the kingdom of God to the rest of the world, serving as heaven's representatives to earth. We, we've been talking the, the first week, Trey preached on 1 Corinthians 13, how we are to be agents of true agape love, gift love. And then the second week, we, we looked at 2 Corinthians 5 and talked about agents of fragrance. By the way, that barbecue smell today probably is going to be a little more uh, distracting than my little skimpy steaks, too. We're talking several pounds of pulled pork down there. You're going to want to, uh, I'll try to make this quick because my stomach's growling as well. And then we talked about being agents of reconciliation, that we've been given the ministry of reconciling that which has been broken, that which has been ruptured back together. Now, I, mean, I didn't mention this in my sermon, but in the Facebook post, we talked about racial reconciliation and familial reconciliation and ecclesiastic reconciliation in, in the church as well. So lots of different divisions that we are to uh, bring back together. And then today's focus Agents of Grace, looking at a very powerful passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We've been reading this whole time from the, the letters to the Corinthians, and we've been talking about how Paul had a, a rocky relationship with the church in Corinth. He had planted this, this little church in a very cosmopolitan town, the port city of Corinth in the south of, of what we know now as Greece. And this, this church had a lot of issues. It was in a very worldly environment where a lot of different cultures became like a melting pot there. And, and, and like any church, it, it was not a perfect one. Why wasn't it perfect? Well, because it was full of people. And people are broken. People are fallen. People struggle because we live in flesh. We are in trouble. These are the kind of people we read about in Corinth who, who get jealous of one another, Paul says. They're the kind of people who seek status within the body of believers. They're the kind of people who pledge allegiance to certain preachers within the church instead of pledging their allegiance to Christ alone. They're the kind of people who are deeply mired in all kinds of sexual sin. They're people who greedily approach the Lord's table in order to fill their stomachs and not their souls. They're the kind of people who are snobs and they, they shun poor people and, and the outcasts when they gather together in the assembly of the Lord. And they're people who, who don't hold to good, sound doctrine regarding important things like the end times. They don't get it. 
They're the kind of people who cause one another to stumble instead of edifying one another, like Trey preached about on September 3rd. They're also the kind of people who struggle with marriage and their own marriages. This is nothing like the church today, right? Surely nothing like Woodmont Baptist. We've, we've said that, that because Paul has this, this rocky relationship with them that he's written them several letters. We know that he's written four letters. We only have two of those today. And what we read here in 2 Corinthians is his final letter. We know this is the last word that he's written to the church in Corinth. And it's a fascinating letter. It's deeply personal. It's, it's deeply confessional and, and relational. This is Paul defending his apostolic authority. And more important than his authority is he's clarifying the gospel message, the core of what it means to be a Christian. He's, he's giving them very important doctrines here. And so Paul's kind of wide open, especially these last few chapters we've been reading through this week in our Bible reading plan. This is almost like Paul is writing stream of consciousness here. It's, it's raw. It's, it's unfiltered Paul at his best. He's, he's angry. He's, he's so intense at points, especially in these last chapters in this letter, that it's really unlike any other of his letters. You know, Romans is so polished, and, and Philippians is so loving. He just loves the church in Philippi so much. But man, Corinth is a mess. And so this, this raw, unfiltered Paul, Paul is, is here in these last few chapters dealing with this rebellious minority that's still holding on to some power in the church in Corinth. He's defending his ministry as being legitimate. His ministry was given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. We can read about that in Acts chapter 9. Unlike these other false apostles who were coming into Corinth from the east and they were teaching heresy and they were saying, oh yeah, we, we've been called by God, but they were liars. Whereas Paul was actually made an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ by his own encounter with him. So then Paul defends all these the suffering that he's gone through, the, the, the false teachers said, there's no way Paul could really be an apostle because he's, he's been through so much suffering. That, that, that can't possibly be a sign of God's favor. And he defends all of his physical suffering. He says, yes, my suffering is because I am an actual apostle of Christ. He says, I've been beaten more times than I can remember. I've been flogged. I, I've been uh, stoned. They tried to kill me by throwing rocks at me one time. Three times I've been shipwrecked, completely thought I was going to die at sea. And, and then in a deeply personal moment, he confesses his mental anxiety as well as his physical abuses that he's suffered. He, he confesses the stress and the suffering mentally that his ministry has caused him. Look at chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, verse 28. He says, apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the other churches. Anybody here relate to this today? The anxiety, the, the pressure on me that I feel? I can. Paul's confessing his weakness here. He's experiencing a, a profound weakness, not only of his mind as he feels anxiety and pressure, but physically. He's homeless. He's cold, he says. He's He's completely uh, left alone with, with no hope of, of uh, physical needs being taken care of either. He's not strong enough to handle this ministry, is what he's saying. Look at verse 29. Who's weak 
and I'm not weak. Who's made to fall, and I'm not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Paul, the the greatest missionary of all time, the guy that wrote the most beautiful doctrinal thesis ever, Romans chapters 1 through 16. This is the guy who's saying, I'm pathetic. I am weak. I am anxious. I am homeless. That's who's boasting in his weakness. Most pastors would never do this, right? We'd get run out of our congregations, right? Pastors like to boast on their successes and their strengths, not Paul. Go on to chapter 12. You know, chapters were inserted in verse numbers arbitrarily arbitrarily, like in the 600 AD time. So this is way after Paul's time. He's, He's still going on with this thought. Chapter 12, verse 1. I must go on boasting. Though there's nothing to be gained for it, I will go on divisions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. You see, at this point in Paul's ministry, these, these false apostles, these, these false teachers who had come into Corinth were bragging about these visions that they'd had and these, these supernatural dreams and, and wonders that had happened to them. And Paul's basically saying here, let's talk about visions, okay? You want to talk about visions? I'll tell you about visions. I know a guy, this is kind of like I have a friend who, he's talking about himself here, but he, he's so careful not to brag that he's, he's using the third person, saying, I know a guy who was caught up to the, the third heaven for an amazing vision, and whether it was in the body or not, I don't even know. He, he's so, uh, he, he can't even describe this experience because it felt like an out-of-body experience. And that phrase, the third heaven, has been like misunderstood and abused really throughout history. And all it means is, is like the first heaven would be like the sky where the birds fly, and the second heaven would be like where the moon and the stars and the sun are, the things we can see. So then third heaven would be the highest heaven where God dwells. The heaven that is so far beyond our capacity to see or comprehend. That's where the Lord God reigns with his angels in glory. The highest heaven is what he's saying. Paul got a glimpse of that heaven. This is the only place in the New Testament that we read about where Paul talks about this vision, but it's clear in his other writings, like in Ephesians chapter 3, that he could only been revealed the knowledge that he has by a supernatural sort of revelation that was given to him. So Paul has this amazing revelation. Look at verse 3. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. That's heaven. Whether in the body or not, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things which cannot be told, which man may not utter. It's completely supernatural. Things that he was shown that are too wonderful for words. So keep reading verse 5. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears in me. Paul, we know, was not much to behold visually or even rhetorically. He's saying, look, I'm not much. So he's, he's so careful not to brag, but he's returning to this idea of weakness. He says, I'm not going to boast except in my weaknesses. That was so countercultural to the people in Corinth of that time. 
He, he's coming back to this idea of weakness. Why? We'll get to that in a second. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Although Paul is being completely forthcoming and, and, and raw and honest here in these last four chapters of 2 Corinthians, he purposely does not give us the details about what this thorn is. What, what, what is he really dealing with? What specifically is he talking about? We don't know. Some scholars have thought it was some kind of intermental struggle, like some kind of deep depression or, or anxiety, some psychological battle that he was constantly fighting in his own mind. Maybe it was the guilt of, of persecuting the church for so long that he talks about in, in Acts chapter 7 and 8. Maybe uh, it was the anguish of knowing that his own people had rejected the true Messiah. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and now he knows that the Jews had, had not believed in the one true God of gods, Jesus Christ our Lord. Another guess that scholars have is that the, the thorn was a messenger of Satan, like he says, as an actual messenger, a person, some kind of, of a false apostle, or maybe a group of, of false apostles who, who continued to spew lies in Corinth as if it was God's truth. Other people think that this was an actual messenger of Satan, a, a demon that was tormenting Paul. But, but I, I think it's a fourth view. I think most scholars are right when they say this was probably a thorn in his flesh, he says. So in the flesh means it was probably a physical malady of some sort. Maybe it was poor eyesight. Maybe it was a, a bum leg or migraines. Maybe it was some kind of illness like a malaria fever that continually plagued him. Whatever it was, I, I'm kind of glad that God doesn't give us the details here in his word. Because this way we can all relate to this. Everyone in this room is, is struggling with something in their lives that is currently uh, hindering you. Maybe it's even hurting you physically today. <clears throat> Maybe it's something that, that you've been wrestling with on a daily basis and, and you don't know why. And you've asked God to take it away and he said no. Why would God do that? Well, if you're like my children, you're probably asking why all the time, like I am. Paul says that this thorn was given to him. Given by whom? Yes, it was a messenger of Satan, but it doesn't say that, that it was given by Satan. Paul's implying this thorn was given to him by the sovereign God who gives all things that come our way. The one who controls every atom of the universe. Why? Would God do that? that? That becomes even more convoluted now. So if God did this, why would he do that? Why is God making Paul suffer? Why is God making me suffer? Well, let's keep reading. The answer is in the next two verses. <clears throat> Verse 9, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. But he said to me, when I pleaded with him, God, please take this thorn away from me. God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the subversive truth of the gospel, isn't it? This is the source of power for Christ, that he on the cross, as he was being crucified, that God was accomplishing the greatest victory ever. This is the source of power not only for Christ, but for the church as well. This subversive truth. You know, I'm always honored when people in the church come to me for a word of of counsel, and we get to sit in my office and talk about what's going on in their lives. And and often people come to my office, and they're at the end of their rope. They, They come confessing that they've been crying out to God, saying, I can't do that, God. I can't do it anymore. I can't take it anymore. They've exhausted their reserves of, of strength. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> They're at their limit. <coughs> and so sometimes it's my job as a pastor to gently help them to understand <coughs> that this is the precise moment where God's great glory and grace can be put on display in the midst of their desperation. It's, it's the Opportunity for God's power, his true power in Jesus Christ to be made manifest in their lives in the midst of their inability. God's ability is made perfect. Now they've finally reached the point where God's great grace, his ever-present, all-sustaining goodness and power that is offered freely to undeserving people like me and like you, It's when that grace and goodness can finally take over completely in our lives and pull us even more into abandonment to ourselves and surrender to the high and holy God of the universe where we wave our white flag and say, I can't do it, God, I give up. You take the wheel, as Carrie Underwood says. (laughs) This is the moment where God pulls us into his will completely, where he takes over in our lives and and, and accomplishes his good purposes through us by his power, not by our own feeble abilities. This is what grace is all about. And this grace that we're talking about was made manifest in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the fact that God did not abandon us here to our own sins, but that he gave us his grace that is greater than all our sin. He entered into our weaknesses. God himself came into our world and took on stinking human flesh in order to to redeem this fallen world and to make us his own, in order to, to save us from the same terminal illness of sin that we all are born into the minute we enter this world. The incarnation of God was a, a rescue mission. It was the, 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 the climax of the story of everything ever in order to bring us all back to graciously redeem his rebellious children when we least deserved it, back into his loving, secure, forgiving embrace, cleansed from all unrighteousness. As we read last week in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 5, verse 21, for our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the grace that God extends to us now in this place and in this very moment. It was available for Paul, just as it's available for you and me now, and for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation today. Regardless of how dire your your circumstances are, regardless of of, of how much pain you're in, of, of how great the suffering that you may find yourself in today, His grace is there, and it is enough. That grace is sufficient for whatever you're going through today. I believe that with all my heart. The question that we must ask ourselves then is if everything was taken from us, if our our families, we we read through Job a few uh, weeks ago in our Bible reading plan, a few months ago, I guess now. If everything was taken from us, our health, our jobs, our our friends, our, our identity, In this world, our resources, would God's grace still be enough for us? I I saw um, a a student had posted on Instagram, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Do you remember this from ninth grade? We did ninth grade English last week or two weeks ago. Let's do ninth grade science now, uh, or social studies. This may be more like fifth grade social studies nowadays. But remember this, it has these, this, this hierarchy of needs, the base level are physiological needs like food and, and sleep and, and drink, and then you move up to like safety and then love and self-esteem and then like self-actualization at the top is the greatest need, but you got to meet the, the physiological needs first. I saw a student who posted this and they had written underneath, have you seen this? At the bottom they wrote underneath it, Wi-Fi. Got to have Wi-Fi first. Wi-Fi is the key. Everything else I can deal with, but I got to have Wi-Fi. And I think teenagers, they're self-aware that they're, you know, mocking their own need for, for Wi-Fi. But it made me think about what's, what's the base level for our needs? What's, what's the most fundamental need that we possess? What, what if you and I were to take our personal hierarchy of needs? What would you put at the bottom? What would you put at the base level? Is, what if we only put one thing on the entire pyramid? What if we said that more basic than breathing, more fundamental than food or sleep to to our lives is grace? What if grace was the only thing we put on the pyramid? Our needs are grace and grace and more grace. That's it. God's grace is enough. Everything else on that pyramid can be taken care of and is only because of God's grace. It's why our new tagline says, by God's grace. Everything we do here is by God's grace. I mean, think about it. Every every morsel that we eat, every night's rest that we enter into, every kiss that we receive from our spouse is all grace. It's all a gift. We don't deserve any of it. What do we deserve? Rachel's been teaching our children about the, the Roman road, right? The wages of sin, the wages are what we have earned, right? Romans 6.23, what we've earned is death. That's what we deserve to be paid, is death. That's what we've earned. But God has turned his wrath into our favor. Instead of judging us for our sin and giving us the due penalty that we deserve, his grace has given us God's righteousness instead when we least deserved it. The truth is that apart from grace, we'd all be dead Spiritually, yes, but emotionally too. 
Even physically, I would argue that we don't deserve to have the life and the health that we have now. It's all grace. It used to drive me nuts on that Dave Ramsey Collins show that he'd say, how you doing? He'd say, better than I deserve. And then he'd ask him, what else? But he understood grace, right? We're all doing better than we deserve. It's easy to wallow in self-pity and get caught up in poor me. But we're all doing better than we deserve because it's all God's grace. It's only by God's grace that we're here. At Celebrate Recovery last Monday night, we sang uh, Larnell Harris's song, uh, Were It Not For Grace, which by the way, I hope he gets royalty checks from Beauty and the Beast, because that Beauty and the Beast theme song is the exact same. Have you noticed that? I don't know. I mean, he wrote it first, right? Surely. I hope he's getting royalties. Go listen to it. Great song. They sing this a lot, I'm sure, at Celebrate Recovery. Is that right, Ron? This is, a, this is kind of an anthem, almost, like a theme song. The chorus says this, Were it not for grace... I can tell you where I'd be. This is written in the 80s. Wandering down some pointless road to nowhere with my salvation up to me. I know how that would go. The battles I would face. Forever running but losing the race were it not for grace. These are men and women who are very much aware of their hurts, their habits, and their hang-ups. And when they sing this, it's passionate, isn't it? It's raw, it's real. They believe this. Were it not for grace, we'd know where we'd be. If we could begin to wrap our heads and our hearts around this truth that we're all hopelessly lost apart from God's grace, it would change the way we live, right? It would change the world around us too as we serve as agents of that grace everywhere we go. So let's finish our time this morning by answering this question that we asked earlier. Why? Why would, would God send a thorn to Paul and then refuse to take it away? Why does God allow a messenger of Satan into our lives today? And not just for a brief, you know, habit-forming season where God sends us this hardship and then he delivers us from it. This is an ongoing malady that Paul has to live with for the rest of of his life on this earth. Why? During our, our simple worship services last spring, we had a series called The Most Misused Verses in the Bible. And we went through lots of, of different verses that are often misquoted or, or misused or, or misapplied or, or quoted out of context. And, and one of the, the ones that's the, the key, uh, one, of, one of the key verses that's used in this way is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Have you ever heard people twist this and say something like, yeah, Scripture says that God will never give you more than you can handle. God will never give you more than you can bear. The Bible tells us that, that whatever you're going through, don't worry about it, because God will never give you more than you can handle. Is that what that verse says? Is that what that verse is saying? No. Think about Jesus himself in the garden the night that he's betrayed and arrested. He's, he's heading towards the reality of his own excruciating torture and death in a humiliating criminal fashion. Three times he prays that the cup would pass from him, just like Paul prays that the thorn would be taken from him. And God says, no. And Jesus at the end of his prayer, surrenders and says, yet not my will, but yours 
be done. He, he couldn't handle it. Jesus himself couldn't handle it. God, please take this from me. I can't do it. His flesh was weak in that moment. 1 Corinthians 10.13 is about temptation, not trials. This says we'll never be tempted beyond what we can handle, right? That means you have no excuse when you sin. It means that, that the temptation is never too great where you could say, well, I just couldn't, the temptation was too much. No, it's never too much. We always have resources to avoid temptation. It has nothing to do with trials, though. God drives us to our knees with the trials that we go through. It has nothing to do with the trials. We're always at a point where I say, God, I can't handle it. I can't do it on my own. This is the point. This is the answer to why God puts us through stuff like what we're going through. Because it drives us to this place of total dependence upon him and on his good grace and total abandonment to ourselves in our feeble ways. Look back at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. This is fascinating. Paul starts this letter out by saying, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Oh, we're dead. We are going to die. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Oh, guys, this is it. God's going to kill us now. This is it. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. When you despair of death in your own life, remember that you totally rely on the God who conquered death. So now we can say, oh death, where is your sting? Oh grave, where is your victory? Because of God's grace. All the shipwrecks that Paul went through, all the beatings, all the floggings, the near death experiences that he and his friends had were all to make him and, and, and his friends rely not on themselves, but on the high and holy God. To drive him from, from looking to their own paltry abilities to, to survive in this world and to do God's work. And to drive them to the cross. To where the, the all-powerful power of God who reigns over death itself and will one day destroy death can be made manifest in his weaknesses. Why do we constantly depend on our own abilities? Why do we constantly look to our own resources when God offers us unlimited power? <clears throat> the crazy thing is that the stronger we think we are, the, the more capable that we believe ourselves to be, the, 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 the more we believe our resources are able to handle what's coming, coming our way, the less of God's power is evident in our lives. The less of true divine power comes through in our lives. This is a tough lesson for us to grasp, especially in the, uh, the prevailing culture in which we live. I, I remember in high school um, having to read, again, high school education, this is, this is a big part of my life apparently, um, as I work on my doctorate now. Um, but I remember reading essays by Ralph Waldo Emerson. You remember those? Ralph Waldo Emerson, great American essayist, and, and, and he espoused the ideals of self what? Reliance. Self-reliance. You ever hear this phrase, a self-made man or a self-made woman? 
She, she was born with nothing, but she pulled herself up by her bootstraps. We love those kinds of stories in, in, in American culture, right? But the, the crazy thing about this is that phrase, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, that originated in Britain, and it was an originally an insult to mean a crazy person, a fool who tries to lift themselves by their own bootstraps. Because we know now that Isaac Newton taught us that whenever a force is exerted on something, that an equal and opposite force is exerted, right? The more we pull up, there's more pushing down, right? And it's completely futile to try to pull ourselves up because we can't do it. It, 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 was, a, it was like an insult used for an idiot. That guy's trying to pull himself up by his own bootstraps. <laughs> Whereas we try to teach our kids, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, kids. No, it's making idiots of your kids. Teach them to rely on God's grace. Don't teach them to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. They can't do it. Isaac Newton proved it. You cannot pull yourself up. Only God can pull you up when you're drowning. I love James 1. Our, our staff spent a lot of time last year dwelling in James chapter 1. I think Richard brought this chapter to us. James chapter 1 verse 2 implores us. This is James, the brother of Jesus, writing, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you meet trials, not temptations, trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, God gives us these trials because he's a good, good father who loves us and wants us to be perfect and complete, not lacking in anything. Our trials prove to us that all we need is God's grace in order to have the unlimited resources of divine power. It, in our weakness, his perfect power is completed in our lives. The weaker we are, the greater his power is. I, I was at a funeral yesterday. I couldn't go to Habitat for Humanity. And, and the, the funeral was for Pastor Sam Boyd at Forest Hills where I served for six years. And, and his wife died of ALS. She was diagnosed three years ago. And he said at the end of the, of the funeral, he spoke at his, his own wife's funeral. He said, I know this is going to make me a better person. That God's doing something in my life and that he's going to use the death of my beloved wife in order to make me a better person. And he believes that. This trial is going to somehow be for God's glory ultimately and for Sam's good in the end. So the invitation this morning is, is twofold. First, I, I invite you to give up. I invite you to wave your white flag and surrender. To completely abandon yourself this morning to God and to his will for your life. To say, not my will, God, but yours be done. Whatever you're facing this morning, let's stop depending on our own feeble abilities to handle it. Guess what? You can't. That's the point. I can't handle each day on my own, let alone uh, try to, to do a sermon, let alone try to parent my kids, let alone try to love my wife. I can't do it. I'm selfish. I'm broken. I'm needy. Only God can do it through me. Some of you are going through some really big stuff today. I know you have thorns in your lives that are greater than anything I've ever gone through. But for some of us, we're still not there. We're still not on our knees yet. 
How big a thorn is it going to take for the Lord to send you in order for you to come to a place of surrender? I've, I've dealt with teenagers in, in youth ministry before, and I, I just, I've prayed that they don't wake up in a ditch before they realize the path they're headed down. You know what I mean? I've, I've talked with people in recovery, in, in Celebrate Recovery and those kind of things, who said they hit rock bottom before they found God's grace. Is that what needs to happen to you and me? I pray it doesn't. I pray that we can surrender now, no matter where you're at, to all of God is and, and all that, that, that we aren't. See, some of you today feel like Paul. You're despairing of life itself. You feel like you've got the death sentence. Maybe you have got a death sentence here today. I would encourage you to start receiving God's grace in a whole new, fresh kind of way. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Some of you feel like you're not worthy. You are made worthy through Jesus Christ to approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Only God's grace will help. God's unmerited favor, undeserved and freely given by a good, good Father who loves us and wants us to be perfect and complete, not lacking in anything. Second, after you've received God's grace afresh today, how will you then bear that out in your life as an agent of grace? Who have you been holding a grudge against? Who do you feel is unworthy to receive your forgiveness or your love today? Who do you need to be reconciled with only by God's grace, not because they deserve it? Who can you be light and life to in your world not because, again, not because they deserve it, but because you are acting as an agent of God's grace, which you've received, which we are to freely give now to others. Let's receive God's grace, and then let's bear it out as agents of God's grace today. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your grace that is greater than all our sins. Nothing we do can ever pay you back for the way that you've given us your righteousness when we least deserved it. Nothing we do is ever enough to, to return to you the unmerited favor that you've shown us, but I pray that you would let us live lives that are worthy of the gospel. Help us to leave this place full of your grace. Help us to, to open our hands to you this morning, O oh God, and say we have nothing to bring to this fight that we're in. It's only by your grace that we can win, God. When we surrender, that's when we win. Help us to wrap our heads and our hearts around this truth today. And then help us to bear it out to the world. Help us to act as agents of grace as we leave this place today. Freely giving away undeserved love, undeserved favor, because we have received that kind of undeserved love and favor as well. God, we love you. We pray this all in your high and your holy name. In the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We invite you this morning, if you have never followed Christ for the first time, if you've never accepted his grace and, and forgiveness as Lord and Savior of your life, of your heart and your soul and your mind and your body, there's no better time to do that than right now. I'd love to talk to you about that. Maybe you've done that. Maybe you've followed Christ as Lord, but you've never been baptized. I'd love to talk to you about the powerful symbol of baptism, the outward reality of the inward reality the outward symbol of what's going on inside of your heart. Maybe you're not a member of a church and, and you feel God pulling you to, to become a part of our fellowship here. 
and to become a part of what the Lord is doing here at Woodmont. We'd love to talk to you about joining the church as a member today. Whatever it is that the Lord has put on your heart today, let's, let's come to him now in honest confession. We're going to stand and sing our hymn of response, Amazing Grace. Let's stand and sing now.